I'm Horace Freeland Judson. I probably ought to say at once that I'm not myself a scientist. I'm a journalist and critic and historian of recent science. But I have with me today two of the most distinguished scientists that this century has produced. Uh, James Watson, to my left, and Francis Crick. And their distinction comes from something in the first place that happened 40 years ago, which was the discovery of the structure of DNA, which is the substance of which genes are made. And that took place early in 1953 at the Cavendish Laboratory in Cambridge in England, uh, which actually was a physics laboratory and not a biological laboratory. It was a place where uh, the Cavendish professor of physics uh, was a man named Lawrence Bragg, uh, who had been working most of his professional life on the structures of molecules and as the working out of these structures got more and more elaborate the molecules got larger and larger and some of the largest molecules for which the structures were then not known uh, were those which are characteristic of living things including in those days chiefly proteins uh, but also as it turned out DNA. I think that many people who were involved with those years of science would think of them today as a kind of golden age of science and I think that's something that I want to return to with some of the questions later because one of the things that's happened in this past 40 years is a, a great transformation in the way science is done by younger people, people of the kind of age that uh, Jim Watson and Francis Crick were when uh, they made their discovery. Um, I'll start I think with the question of the education of young scientists because Jim uh, as I recall, went to high school and then to the University of Chicago in Chicago. Uh, Francis, as I recall, went to a, um, a boys' day public school, but a small one, public school in the English sense of a private institution. It was a boarding school. Uh, it was a boarding school. And then you went um, on to do physics at University College London. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, Jim, although he went to the University of Chicago where the education was broad and general in many respects, uh, became a biologist, not a physicist, um, and was working in particular with the genetics of the simplest kinds of living creatures, bacteria, and particularly the viruses that prey upon those bacteria. So that their backgrounds, when they met in about a year and a half before they discovered the structure, their backgrounds were really considerably different from each other. I want to get at a little bit some of the questions of what sort of education it is that you think did your education specifically set you up to be a scientist, Jim? Yes, it gave me a goal, uh, which, was, which was to find out what the gene was, which I got in college. I think I uh, read the little book by Erwin Schrodinger, What is Life, when I was in my third year at the university. And mm -hmm. uh, he made uh, finding out what the gene was very exciting. So I said, you know, I'll give up birds and take up uh, the gene. <laughs> But Francis, was I mean, an English education of that kind in that era something that set you up to be a scientist in particular? Well, I think it did, but I think one should make one or two points that uh, Jim was much more precocious than I. You didn't mention he went to the University of Chicago at the age of 15. And also, of course, he's 12 years younger than me. And um, when, when we met, I must have been in my early 30s, and um, I'd had to do war work for a period. So I hadn't been in scientific research and I hadn't even got a PhD. Uh, 
So we were a very strange mixture in that way, that he was, as it were, very advanced in his scientific career, though much younger, and I was very much delayed. My interest in, in science arose, I think, from my parents giving me a book called The Children's Encyclopedia, <laughs> in which it had all sorts of things, history and literature in, but I was particularly attracted to the science. I had reasonable scientific uh, teaching in the before I went to this boarding school at the age of 14. But I was fortunate in the school I went to, I went to it because my father and, and his brothers went there, um, was one that special, which put emphasis on science, which the ordinary English boarding mm -hmm. school didn't. When I went to university college, on the other hand, I, I don't think, uh, I merely followed the, part, the standard pathway of doing physics and mathematics. And it was only because of the interruption of the war that I discovered I was really interested in these basic bit biological problems. So I had a, a, a second chance, as it were. I really had a, a false start, which mm -hmm. wouldn't have led me in this direction. And then when I, at the age of 30, I was able to start again. And so the, I, the answer was, yes, my, my high school education really was of a, of a, a fairly high caliber. Moreover, the level was fairly high in the sense that uh, the qualifications I would have had would be enough to get me into a second or even a third year at an at a, at American university. You made a couple of choices quite early, and then Jim a little later made another choice, which interests me quite a lot, and that is um, you made that choice to move over to biology. Did you know why you did that? What is it that... Well, yes, I, was, I think I was clear at the time. Um, I was looking for regions looking for aspects of, of regions of science uh, which I thought were, were deeply mysterious and ones which were not so difficult as parts of theoretical physics were that I, I thought I couldn't probably make much of a contribution. And the two regions I, I sort of fixed on were the borderline between the living and the long living, what we would now call molecular biology, and also the the behavior of the, of the human brain and consciousness, what we would now call neuroscience. And I had to decide between those two, and I decided that I was probably better suited for doing molecular biology. But then later on, when I, at the age of 60, I went to the Salk, then I switched on to what I do now. Um, but Jim, you made a choice of a somewhat narrower kind once you were in Europe as a postdoc and had had the, a year that was not particularly productive in Copenhagen. Uh, but then chose to come to the Cavendish uh, in England rather than doing as what so many of your uh, peers had done in American, uh, young men in American science, uh, who had gone to the Institut Pasteur in Paris. Uh, what was it that took you to the Cavendish in particular? Well, it, it studied structure and it offered the possibility of actually seeing what DNA was. Uh, at the Pasteur, they would talked about it, but they wouldn't have seen what it was. I mean, it wasn't the Pasteur was very good but its approach was genetic. Mm -hmm. And uh, I thought we actually uh, should move on from the genetic approach to see what the structure was. But then what you brought to the Cavendish was a kind of training in genetics in the modern, the, then the most modern genetics, which I take it that Francis, you had really not been at all familiar with when Jim showed up. Well, I, I was familiar with it only at second hand through reading the literature and so on, but I didn't know the people, and therefore I wasn't sort of in with the, the it wasn't a, a knowing what was exactly going on before it was published. 
So when I met Jim, as it were, I found somebody who had the same interests as myself, but had this wider knowledge. But it wasn't that I didn't know about genetics or even didn't know about transforming factor or anything of that sort. I'd certainly read about it, although my, my colleagues, uh, Max Brooks and John Kendrew, were more focused on proteins and not on the question of genes. So you... We both had the same... It, basic interest. We wanted to know what genes were and what they did on the one hand, and we thought that getting at the molecular structure would help. That's what we had in common. We had quite different backgrounds, but of course by that time I understood about X-ray diffraction, which Jim had, had only got the very beginning knowledge of, and uh, Jim had this much wider acquaintance with the genetic side of things. Because there were two things obviously that went on at that um, celebrated meeting of the first weeks and months that you knew each other. One of them was uh, a personal interaction and mutual excitement, which is very difficult to pin down in words. Uh, but the other, of course, was the, f the foundation of that was in large part this intellectual interaction between mm -hmm. uh, of each one supplying something the other needed in order to be able to get mm -hmm. at the problem that you essentially discovered that you agreed upon. Mm -hmm. But I think it is important also to make the thing about our collaboration. It wasn't that I did the physics and Jim did the biology. On the contrary, if you look at, the con at who did what, for example, Jim's key contribution was to do the actual pairing of the bases, which is, which is definitely a thing in physical chemistry and so on. So it was, we both, as it were, wanted to, to do all the roles, even if one of us had got a slightly better background than the other. The other part, of course, of this interaction was the, uh, the nature of the kinds of approaches that you're putting aside, whether it's physics or biology, because this was the the, the, at the joining point of the two, but also the difference in the way you approach science. I mean, you were a reader and, in some sense, a theoretician, and, and Jim, although thoroughly in the literature, no doubt, had, as far as I can understand the history, had a very vivid and strong visual imagination as to how things... I don't go. think so. I think we're, we were both readers. Yes. I think no, I, 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 we liked facts, or, you know, we wanted to find out which facts were correct. Um, but the speed with which you recognized the X-ray crystal, crystallographic patterns, for example, of tobacco mosaic virus in the summer of 52, uh, and that that was no doubt a helical structure as you could see almost instantly from the from the pattern that the x-rays made uh, and then of course applied that same speed of understanding on the, on the time when you saw the crucial photograph that Rosalind Franklin had made um, in the spring of I, I don't think you'd call it speed it's just we weren't slow <laughs> <laughs> I mean you know well, you'd have to be pretty dense you know uh, with that TMV pattern, since we talked about helices, not to interpret it that way. I mean, Francis had primed me as to how uh, we thought. I think what, uh, is that Francis and I both think in roughly the same way. I think he thinks much faster than I do, but we sort of reject facts the same way. We sort of uh, are very flexible. We don't get, you know, we want the answer more than, you know, proving that we were right yesterday. Or proving that you were right on the, right the exact approach that uh, you, you weren't looking for a pure approach, you were looking for the answers. But I think there is a difference in a way, although I don't think, I mean, it worked out all right, that it depended on un understanding what the diffraction from a helix was like in, in, a, in, a, in an x ray pattern. I might uh, add here that um, uh, helices are not frequently found in nature except in living things where they are quite common and therefore the particular sort of pattern that uh, an x-ray diffraction picture makes 
um, from helices is characteristic. It's a signature pattern very often, but it's not one that people who had not worked with biological molecules would necessarily at, in those days have understood to find out. Is that right? Yes, I think so. The, but the, what I was going to, the point I was going to make was that uh, I and Bill Cochran and also Vand uh, worked out the mathematics of that, mm -hmm. which I don't think Jim would have done. No. But on the <laughs> other hand, having once we'd worked out the mathematics, Jim was went to some pains to understand the implications of the mathematics and what characterized the pattern and so on. And that was why he was able to recognize it in these, these other, other things. I mean, DNA had the, the B form, had the most beautiful helical diffraction pattern you could have. So, and Francis and I had talked nothing but helices for... Weeks and weeks. Yes. <laughs> right. I mean, you know, it was a constant discussion. And uh, we wanted it to be a helix because it meant the answer was simpler. We just thought, let's hope the answer is simple. That's why we want the helix. If it wasn't a helix, it was going to be a mess. <laughs> I should say something about the, the world of science in those days, which was that um, science in general was in many respects a very small world. And certainly this kind of biology uh, was a small corner of a small world. Um, and working on this problem uh, were Jim and Francis at the Cavendish Laboratory in Cambridge, and then another group uh, at King's College in London, uh, where there were two people who were crucially involved, um, Morris Wilkins and Rosalind Franklin, uh, and they didn't get on. Um, they were at daggers drawn, and um, the conflict between them very much slowed down any of the work that might possibly have been done um, at King's College, even if they had been on the right track, which for some weeks and months, Rosalind Franklin refused to be on the right track. What she had done, which was crucial, was to take some photographs, some X-ray diffraction pictures, uh, which distinguished another form of DNA from what had been known uh, in similar pictures before the war. And this is what uh, Jim was talking about, is the B pattern. Uh, Jim didn't see those pictures. Uh, Rosalind had had them since April or May of the previous year, until the occasion um, in end of January, early February in uh, 1953, when he did see them. Uh, the third person who was working on the structure of DNA was uh, way off in the distance, Linus Pauling at Caltech in the United States. Um, and it's certainly the case, whatever else was the competition that might be there between Pauling and um, Jim and Francis, there was also a long history of competition um, between Linus Pauling and the Cavendish professor, Lawrence Bragg, who eventually had to give a, uh, his approval for Jim and Francis to go after this structure and, and to, to publish it. I think we should add there was a, uh, certainly an intention on our part to collaborate with the people at King's College, because we regarded them in London as a, as a sister unit of the Medical Research Council. And I was personally friendly with Maurice Wilkins. Uh, I wasn't so friendly then as I was later with Rosalind because of the difficulties they had between them. Uh, so we felt we were, as it were, for a stage trying to help them, whereas we were always conscious that we were more in competition with, the, with, with Pauling, as you've just mm -hmm. said. So it wasn't as if we were competing with everybody. We were trying actually to help the people in London. And we lent them... Yes and yes. I well, mean. no, 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 but we lent no. them the jigs, for our jigs no. to make models, well, sure. for example, and things like that. And we talked about them and we gave some advice to them and this kind of thing, which we certainly didn't, didn't to, do to Linus Pauling, although, as you may have going to be mentioned, we had Linus Pauling's son in our office at that time. I think we must spend a word or two on uh, attempting to say something clear and sensible about Rosalind Franklin. 
uh, who, of course, um, the first thing that has to be said was that she died before the Nobel Prizes were awarded, and I won't ask uh, these gentlemen to tell me what they think would have happened with the Nobels uh, <laughs> if she had lived, because that's an if question in history, and there's no way to get at that. Uh, but how do you evaluate Rosalind's career in science? It's well, so would, much an issue in this She country. was a good experimentalist, but you must remember her previous experience was working on coal which is a quite different, and doing the uh, uh, X-ray diffraction on studies on coal, which is a quite different sort of job from working on a molecule like DNA. Moreover, it wasn't as if she had any prior interest in DNA. She was engaged to go to King's Rock College London on the idea she should do the ref, um, work on the, the study of proteins in solution, and then it was they who suggested she worked on DNA. Having said that, one must say she was a very good experimentalist. The thing that you mentioned, for example, of the dis distinction between the A and the B form, but it, she did beautiful work on the, on the A form in working out the exact unit cell and the symmetry and things of that sort. And where she made a, a mistake was that she wanted to be almost too sound and use what's called the Patterson method instead of following Pauling's example and using more in the way of model building. So, and, and she wasn't so good at that stage on the theoretical side of things, but she was a very good experimentalist. Later on, when she worked with Aaron Klug, she became more sophisticated on the, on the theoretical side. But um, she really did make, it would have been possible to do what we did if it hadn't been for her experimental work. You see, Rosalind has been used, as we all know, um, by um, some present-day uh, American commentators as an example of a woman who had a bad career in science because she was a woman. But the question at the heart of that that has to be answered is whether it's in fact true that she had a bad career in science. No, I don't think she did because she went on and did very good work on tobacco mosaic virus. And, would, and remember, she did die young and she would have done very, very much more. And uh, I never noticed at any period in my dealings with her or other people's dealings with her that she was handicapped because in scientific work, as maybe a few such minor social things, as a, as a woman. We certainly accepted her as just another another scientist. And you must remember there was a very distinguished crystallographer, Dorothy Hodgkin, who was a woman, who we all respected very much. So there was no prejudice, I would say, against, against women. And, and uh, there was at King's College London a certain prejudice as to where they could drink coffee, but that was a college founded by the Church of England. So. <laughs> <laughs> what was your sense of what happened to Rosalind? Well, I think, and she knew it afterwards, she blew it because she had the data for a year. And it was in part because she didn't talk to anyone. She didn't really have someone like Francis to talk to. And it was partly in her personality which didn't force her to have to expose her facts to other people. Because I, I'm sure that if she had become friendly with Francis at our first meeting, uh, Francis would have told her enough facts so that she would have solved it. So, because she had more than enough data to solve it. I mean, Francis says we needed her data. We could have, in fact, I mean, the, the data proved it. But even from the old Asbury thing, if you'd really started thinking about Shargaff's data, you, and uh, you could have got the base pairs and built the model, you wouldn't have had all the nice data to say that it's right. But uh, Pauling could have solved the structure without uh, Rosalind's picture. Uh, 
because there was enough in the data which said there was hydrogen bonding. I mean, it was slightly overdetermined. So yes, uh, I see. Yeah. when uh, I Francis just... saw uh, the significance of the space group that Rosalind had mm -hmm. and that the chains, uh, you could interpret uh, that the chains ran in opposite directions. But you could have proposed it and you wouldn't have been nearly certain that you were right. The double helical model without Rosalind Franklin's data. The crucial thing there is uh, a couple of things to explain. Asbury was the man who at Leeds, uh, before the Second World War, had taken some original X-ray diffraction uh, pictures of DNA, which overlapped the two forms, and therefore uh, the pictures were quite confusing. And that's all that Linus Pauling had uh, to work with. Um, beyond that, there are two facts about um, the structure of DNA, which emerged from various kinds of things that um, Rosalind Franklin did. One of them was the fact that you could tell for sure that the two chains in DNA, in a sense, ran in opposite directions, uh, going up and down, not both going in, in, in parallel directions. And the other fact that emerged was that the uh, what holds the two chains together, the backbones of the two chains together, are these base pairs, which are unique, um, A with T and C with G. Um, and almost always, except in cases of mutation, that's the way the pairing works. Um, and that was something which was available from the uh, biochemical work um, of a Viennese um, biochemist who had moved to the United States before the war, a man named Erwin Shargaff, uh, who had the ratios in his biochemical preparations but had never come up with a physical explanation to explain why those ratios, uh, the A to T and uh, C to G, uh, maintained. He never looked at a structure. Equally either. important was the data on the denaturation of DNA and the availability of the uh, acid-based groups of the base mm, to be titrated. And that was very strong. And Francis and I really, we didn't talk about that enough. It had been published in '47 been around for a long while and Linus uh, ignored it. It's really quite remarkable <laughs> how, you know, these were good data. And I think Rosalind suffered that she didn't have someone to talk to. And I think it's, you can make that also underline that by the fact that when she went to Left Kings and went to Bergberg and, and Aaron Klug went there, she did have someone to talk to. And I think the quality of her work, as it were, did in, improve in that way. It was always very good experimentally, but then she became much better at interpreting the thing mm -hmm. because she had Aaron Clogg to talk to. Which is not to say, by the way, that there were not other women at uh, the King's College Unit, although it's been published by uh, Rosalind Franklin's biographer that there were no other women in, uh, in that unit. The fact is that there were of a staff of about 32 that was listed in, uh, in a paper that was, or a document that was circulated um, in December of um, 52. Uh, there was a staff of about 32, and of those eight, uh, at least eight were female. Um, and I've talked to all of them that still live, and they agree with what you said, mm -hmm. that there was not mm -hmm. a prejudice at that laboratory against yeah. women as, uh, as scientists. Um, I think we have to leave that. This is also the 25th anniversary, not just the 40th anniversary of the discovery of the double helical structure, but the 25th anniversary of the double helix, your book, Jim. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh yes, no, but my publisher never did. They had no part either. <laughs> well, I mean, it's actually, it's your publisher now, Francis. It's yeah, really? Scribner's, yes, yeah. completely. Uh, I thought it was Athenaeum that did. Well, Athenaeum because. I remember at the time that the double helix came out, there was a certain sort of a coolness between the two of you. 
I not very strong. Hmm? No, I think well, well I'm, I think, really made a misjudgment. When Jim originally started reading, reading me chapters of the book, I thought, who would ever want to read this stuff? Little did I know that's exactly what people do want to read. Of course, I know that now. Rather, the people, the people magazine approach to science. <laughs> well, <too. laughs> um, and, and therefore, I thought that Jim had oversimplified the story. But having reread the book, um, I really feel that he did a very skillful job in putting in as much science into the book as that type of book will stand. Um, so I really revised my opinion about it. The other thing I didn't like about it, about it was simply a personal one, that I'm not very keen on personal publicity, and I could see this was going to lead to it as indeed it has. <laughs> but perhaps that was inevitable. Well, I mean, having raised the subject, I should also say that in my opinion that book is uh, in its own strange way a classic. I think that in, uh, in many respects your style is something like riding a jeep over rough country, but uh, on the other hand, you get there. <laughs> uh, it was a, a good story. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I decided to write it down when, uh, you know, I had to give a lecture and Francis didn't show up. It was a research corporation prize and you were out in Seattle and you weren't there really to do the work. So I had to entertain the people. So I told <laughs> the story and they laughed. And, you know, if you can get people to laugh, yes. be surprised and you think maybe you've got a book there. So <laughs> that's really... Uh, I always claim it's, it should also be regarded as, a, as an early, a fragment, early fragment of Jim's autobiography. And then my evidence for this is that there's one chapter that's got nothing to do with DNA at all when Jim goes up to Carradale and Scotland and yes, lies right. on the floor and grows a beard. And that's got absolutely nothing to do with the story, but J Jim obviously thought he ought to put it in. Yes, I wanted to call the book uh, because there you know, was all this uh, question as to whether we had used the data illegitimately and whether we were dishonest that uh, I called the book uh, initially Honest Jim. And uh, not that it was to be the honest truth, but, you know, uh, it was a sort of fit in like with Lord, uh, Lord Jim or something, you know. Oh, a question uh, uh, or of, Lucky Jim, Kingsley Hemmings' book. Yes, but oh. more or less to, uh, to say, well, maybe I wasn't honest. So it was calling into question the fact that there were people who, I think partly out of jealousy and other reasons, uh, thought Francis and I didn't deserve it. <laughs> and we must have, you know, got it the wrong way. And uh, so that's why I called it uh, Honest Jim, because my friend Alfred Tissier has rem remembered this meeting in the mountains with Willie Seeds, who <laughs> called me Honest Jim. And Willie Alfred Seeds having been someone who had been in Rosalind's lab. Uh, no, in, in Morris Wilkins' lab. In Wilkins' lab, all right. Yes. Right. Who, uh, so that was the origin of the title. It was just to... Uh, just like Francis's title in your new book, you know, the title to make uh, amazing hypothesis, you know, something that isn't what people expect, to make them think a little. I'm going to take a big leap and ask what you are doing now. You told us that you're working on um, neurobiology and have been at the Salk Institute for the last 10 years or so. Is it making any progress? Well, it's making a little progress in that I understand the, how difficult the problem is after about 15 years of doing it. Um, where it, I, I'm mainly interested in, in how we and uh, the higher man will see things. And I must confess, when I started, looking back, I really was evading the key questions and merely finding out what was going on and what people were doing. About 10 years ago, I did begin to get a glimpse of what I thought the real problem was. 
So now I think I can state the problem fairly clearly, and I can see some promising approaches, but I can't say we've made yet any real, we haven't, we haven't made the, the step which corresponds to g guessing the answer, the key thing of what makes us conscious of what we see. How do you state the problem? Well, the problem is simply how do you see things and why, why is it you're conscious? It's very difficult to say what you mean by conscious, but you can give examples where people can do things where they're not conscious. A little bit can sometimes leak through from on some, some circumstances from the visual input to the motor output. Or you can take states where you're not con normally thought to be conscious, like under a deep anesthetic. People seem to forget that many of the early experiments on, on animals in which their, their visual system was explored by putting electrodes in their brains were done on anaesthetized animals who, strictly speaking, weren't seeing anything. And the question is, therefore, what is the difference in what's going on in your brain, and particularly in the visual system, which was what I was interested in, when you're, you report that you're seeing something and when you, you can't report for some reason or another. You don't report you're not seeing something, and yet things are still going on in your brain. So that's the question. Mm -hmm. Jim, you, as I recall, since you got the um, the Nobel Prize in '62, or since you shared it with, uh, oh, I just sort of retired. Well, you well, retired from thinking. No, 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 no. You've had your name on uh, actually on one scientific paper since then, as I recall, which was some clever little thing where you were amused by it. And I think this is partly the principle that you ought not to put your name on papers that you didn't make any contribution to, just simply because you were the lab chief. Uh, but yeah, I've. Uh, I've had fun with science. I sort of run a scientific institution, and uh, I was interested in what cancer was, so uh, I wanted to put together an institution where maybe we'd understand what it is, and uh, uh, it's been pretty successful. So I'm happy with my career, though uh, I sort of shock people by saying, you know, unlike Francis, who continues to think, oh, you know, I'm really a manager. Well, you, <laughs> you know, um, I'm no longer a player, I'm a manager, but, you know, my team hits home runs. So, <laughs> you know, do you uh, get as much satisfaction of seeing a home run as hitting it? For some time you were deeply involved with the Genome Project. Yeah, well, that's sort of managing it, you know, getting it started and... Uh, Sometimes I think that was actually more important than my trying to do a little bit of science. Uh, but uh, I still read science in nature every week, and uh, I've just read Francis's book, so uh, <laughs> new book on the brain, so which I enjoyed very much. Uh, so I like to think, but uh, uh, I've just got involved in other ways. I've had fun writing books, I mean, several textbooks, and uh, uh, it forces you to think. So uh, as long as I'm with people who uh, think, I'm happy. I mean, you know, <laughs> if I were with accountants or something like that, or, I would be very happy. If you grant for a moment that um, the time in the 50s uh, when you were, when you came up with the structure of DNA and the period after that when the regulation of uh, the functioning of the genes began to be explored, and the period in the early to middle 60s when the genetic code was determined, all of these things relating to that fundamental question of base pairing and the structure of DNA. Uh, if you, one thinks of those periods as a golden age, some of the characteristics of a golden age mean, among other things, that communication is fast and open uh, in large part, and that the, the world of people that you're interacting with is uh, relatively small. How have things changed to the present day. I'm not sure they were as fast then as they can be now. 
mm. for example, from, uh, at least in molecular biology. But it has changed enormously. But I'm, I've been wondering whether it's the right comparison to make. The real, one of the reasons it's changed in molecular biology is because uh, it has been very successful. The, the invention of recombinant DNA and DNA sequencing has given very powerful tools. Large numbers of people are involved, as, as we hear in the, the, the meeting here. But if you look back, that perhaps chemistry was in that state, and that chemistry was more, what recombinant DNA, what uh, research in, uh, in molecular biology now is somewhat like what chemistry was in those days. We were in the pioneer stage where there are only a few people working and, and so on. I think the other difference is that it's been, it's been got more difficult to get money for that sort of fundamental work because people want to see more results in a shorter time scale. And, uh, and also because the whole enterprise has grown, it's grown more competitive and people, young people especially, feel they have to focus on, pr on problems which they have to get a more immediate answer. So there's definitely been a change. But I think it's, perhaps you can, should compare it with other fields which had also developed from a pioneer stage. In other words, stage. you're talking about compare mature fields with mature fields or maturing yeah, fields yeah, that's with right. maturing Well, for fields. example, I think that would be interesting for you to look into because... Uh, well, I think... Yes, and there may have been a corresponding change in chemistry. You see, from the days of. Well, there are things. There are some interesting things to say about this. But I think it's really the state of the field because what Francis wants to do now, you know, understand consciousness. If you'd ask him, well, how many other people are thinking the way he is, and uh, that he really wants to talk to, and probably say two or three, and so there's almost no one. So it's just like it was in DNA. I think that's a wonderful field to be in. Whereas <laughs> I was going to say, where would you, what would you, what would you suggest to a young scientist that he ought to pick up? If you were a young scientist, where would you, uh, where would you go prospecting? Oh, I, I'd go to the brain and see if I couldn't just somehow be cleverer than Francis with a, you know, less clever brain. But you know, <laughs> in some way, by some trick because of the fact that it's a complete puzzle and uh, there are not many people in the field. That's wonderful. In molecular biology, I've done a calculation with, you know, the DNA world is at least a quarter of a million people. And uh, it's just <laughs> gigantic. Yeah. I mean, there's just no way of knowing who's out there. And, uh, but on the other hand, we need a quarter of a million because it turns out the human uh, living forms are very complicated. So if you say your objective is to understand life, not just understand the gene, then you need vast numbers of people. Uh, we were simple. We were saying we just want to understand the essence of the gene. But now, when you want to understand the essence of life, uh, as I try and tell people, when you give up God, boy, you've got to accept complexity. Because, <laughs> you know, you really, <laughs> you know, you just can't say God did it. You've got to say, well, what did it? And then, you know, it's thousands and thousands of molecules. And that's why you need this giant army of people throughout the world working on all the different parts with the hope that you can understand some part of life which really interests us, like cancer, which really does take an army of people now to try and come to grips with. But you yourself would not go into that field today, you'd go into, uh, if you were starting, starting fresh? Oh, no, because... What uh, else might you go into if you were starting fresh? I can't think of anything else. I, it was just like with the gene. At the time, there was only one problem. Now I say there's still only one problem. 
I think uh, it, I was wondering if one could might make comparison. You remember Jim mentioned Schrodinger's What, what Is Life, which yes. was a little book, let me say, which influenced people, including Jim and myself, and I think Morris Wilkins as a well. A number of others. To, to, quite, to yeah. go into the subject. I think the book I've just written, although it's much longer, uh, the most I could hope for was it would have a similar impact, that it would interest young people in going to this problem, which one can see is an important problem, which you can see it isn't answered, but it doesn't look totally impossible, which is, after all, the impression you got from Schrodinger's book. About the molecular yes. basis of the Yes, but now whether that will happen in the same way, you have to realize there is a difference. We were lucky in the matter of DNA because the reason that DNA basically is fairly simple is it goes right back to near, not necessarily at, near the origin of life. When you're looking at the brain, you're looking at a very complicated system which developed very late in evolution. And it isn't at all clear there will be anything quite as simple and straightforward. It may be like more of these complicated things in cell biology which are involved in cancer. And which involve uh, so often a, an element of the history of uh, yes. evolution as against just principles by which things that's happen right. to be put that's together. Right. But when you don't know the answer, you, it's awfully easy to say it's going to be a hundred years from now before we can do it. But uh, sort of as an outsider uh, trying to read what Francis was saying uh, and some other things, well, there, there are an awful lot of clues out there. You know, if you knew how to put them in, you know, learning defects and what goes wrong when little bits. I mean, it doesn't enable, it's not like the base pairing. It won't be anything like that. But I'll be surprised if it'll be 50 years will pass before we'll know it. Well, I hope it'll be shorter, of course, or I wouldn't be so keen to work in yeah. the field. Uh, but there is another problem in, in relation to the brain that by the time at least Jim and I got into the subject, the way you should think about these things, and, and I'm talking about DNA and, and, and protein synthesis and all that sort of thing, was more or less established. We didn't have to have any radically new concepts. There may have been people who thought there was a life force, but they, we weren't influenced by them at all. When you come to study the brain, it turns out that not only there are many different points of view, but many of them are probably, including one's own, let me say, have got deep fallacies because we have a way of thinking about ourselves which probably won't map onto what is actually there. So there's a, a, a lot of, of thinking having to do so that you don't fall, fall into, into, into traps. And we didn't have that problem, as I can recall, Jim. Do you remember in, in, in those days? No. It all seemed, we didn't have what you might call philosophical problems to do with what we were doing. But if you work on the brain, it's almost impossible to avoid them. And um, I'm afraid we're going to go through a confused period until something happens so we see the mechanism and then probably these, all these rather fuzzy questions will get concrete answers, at least I hope so. I think that is a point where we might consider stopping as an invitation to young scientists to take up this field where there's still maybe another golden age. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Okay.